What's up, everyone? I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Best Podcast. I want to start off just by saying, you know, if you know me or follow me at all, you know where I stand here. I believe Black Lives Matter. I am wholly against white supremacy in all its forms. I'm against police brutality in all its forms, and I'm against any and all aspects of social injustice. I also fully understand that I'm coming from a place of privilege that doesn't allow me to understand what so many of my fellow human beings go through every day. And look, if you disagree with me here, well, this is a pretty one-sided conversation, so I encourage you to listen to something else because you won't like this episode, and I don't really want you here in the first place, to be frank. Well, that being said, I think we've all seen many, many, many brands and companies make statements about what's going on over the past few weeks with some brands and companies obviously doing a much better job being genuine and aligning themselves with the cause than others. But one brand in particular has gotten a lot of positive attention for just coming out and saying outright, we need to dismantle white supremacy and then actually laying out a plan to do so. I say hell yes to that, of course, and I am talking about Ben and Jerry's. Throughout their four decades in business, along with making Cherry Garcia and Chunky Monkey, they've been trailblazers in speaking out regarding their own political beliefs, so much so they employ their own in-house activism team, headed up by Chris Miller. I called them earlier this week to talk about Ben & Jerry's decades of activism, uh, if any companies can actually afford to stay political in the year 2020, and why he thinks it's very important that an ice cream company publicly stands up for what it believes in. Uh, Just a quick note. I'm recording this from my kitchen in Brooklyn, New York, and you will almost definitely hear some police sirens and helicopters in the background from time to time. Uh, Yeah, not much we can do about it. I'm sure many of you out there can relate. Here's our call. Okay. So, so Chris, what is an activism manager, um, first off? (laughs) Why did Ben & Jerry's create the role and how did you specifically end up in the role? I know those are three questions, but uh, I think that kind of covers everything. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, it, it is a relatively unique position within the, the context of for-profit corporations. But as you know, you know, Ben & Jerry's has this more than 40-year history um, of, you know, attempting to use the the company and all of the tools and resources that we have as a for-profit business to not only make the world's best ice cream, but, but also to uh, promote and advance the idea of, of social and economic justice. And, um, you know, that, that approach to doing business is really rooted uh, in the vision and values of our co-founders, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield. Um, and, uh, you know, how the company has done that over the years has evolved from, you know, a time when Ben was leading the work out of a single smoke shop in downtown Burlington to now a global company with, you know, doing business in almost 40 countries around the world. So, so I took the job about six and a half years ago. Uh, my background is in policy and advocacy. 
started my career many years ago uh, working for Bernie Sanders. I, I spent half a dozen years leading the climate change campaign at Greenpeace. Much of my career has been in the not-for-profit world and working on, uh, um, you know, progressive issues. And so, uh, you know, I think when when this position was posted, um, I, there was a decision that was made in, within the company to bring someone in to specifically own the development of the advocacy strategies. And traditionally, that had been and been managed through sort of a, a, a partnership between social mission team, the marketing team, the PR team. Um, but what they did by bringing me in is they, they brought somebody who didn't have a conventional traditional business background in to, to develop the work. And so when I started six and a half years ago, I was the one guy. We're now a team of about 10 people globally. Uh, so we've got uh, uh, about eight folks in Europe. Uh, we've got two folks in the U.S. I guess we're a little more, maybe we're 12. We've got someone in, in Brazil and, and a, a newly hired activism manager in Australia. Um, and, and so the, the idea is to kind of marry people who come from the civil society, not for profit world with our counterparts in the marketing organization, you know, in order to, to, to do this work. And so that's a, you know, so long answer to your relatively succinct set of questions. <laughs> no, it's a great answer. And it actually, you know, it lays a lot out there um, to kind of help understand like why the company needs an activism, an activism manager and why, why they sought you out and why you are the man for the job. Um, and on that note, obviously the statement that Ben and Jerry's put out in the wake of George Floyd's murder at the beginning of the protests got a lot of positive attention, a lot of well-deserved, in my opinion, praise. Uh, the company went out and said, we must dismantle white supremacy, in those words. And connected to the statement is an actual four-point plan to dismantle white supremacy. And of, of course, a lot of brands over the past couple of weeks have, have made statements. But from my own standpoint, and I know from the standpoint of many others, no other brand has made such a strong, sharply worded, and seemingly very genuine statement about the situation. Um, can you shed some light on the story behind the statement, how it came about, how it was created, and how you um, rolled it out. Yeah, I think, you know, there, there are moments in history when it is important to stand and be counted, right? Whether you're an individual, whether you're a corporation, whether you're a political leader. Um, you know, we embarked on this work sort of in terms of our external advocacy on issues associated with civil rights and racial justice in earnest about five years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we focused on a series of issues. We, we initially focused on, on voting rights and the fact that the Supreme Court had gutted a, a critically important provision of the Voting Rights Act that, that, that made it much more difficult for people of color to vote. Um, we, we worked and supported an, an initiative uh, that Dr. Reverend William Barber ran called the Poor People's Campaign. And then about two years ago, we got more deeply engaged and had been engaged ever since on the need to reform the criminal justice system. So back in 2016, in the wake of Trayvon Martin's murder and Michael Brown and the uprising in Ferguson, 
we felt it was important to go on record and publicly state our support for the Black Lives Matter movement and, and to say those words. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess we have a small team within Ben and Jerry's that manages this advocacy and activism work. And we have a weekly meeting, the sort of mechanics of this, we have a weekly meeting uh, where we discuss sort of issues and talk about strategy and what we should be doing. And I guess it was two weeks ago, we, it, it was another moment. It felt like another moment like we had in 2016 where it, it was important simply to go on record and, 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 and say the words white supremacy to talk about police brutality, to, to, to call out the fact that these episodes are not uh, the, the symptom of a series of bad apples or mm-hmm. bad actors, but they are structural and systemic in nature. And, and so we agreed uh, amongst the team that we needed to, to put a statement together. And so that sort of started a chain of events that led to, that was a Friday. I think the statement went up on a Tuesday. Um, you know, obviously a statement like that, we have a series of concentric circles that require sort of, for lack of a better term, approval. It is also true that we have this unique um, structure with this independent board of directors. So although we're, we're a wholly owned subsidiary of Unilever, as a vestige of the acquisition agreement in 2001, this independent board of directors has legal authority over our company's social mission. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a bit of a spe- secret sauce, special sauce around why we're able to do what we do. And within about two hours of the internal team saying we need to have a statement, the, the board of directors also uh, uh, reached out and said we need a statement. And so that kind of set off the chain of events that led to the statement. But, you know, a lot of companies, this is the first time they're doing it, you know, and, and for Ben and Jerry's, it tracks. I mean, four years ago, like you were saying, you came out and you said Black Lives Matter. On your website, you have been writing articles, um, you know, seven ways we know systemic racism is real. Why Ben and Jerry's cares about front end criminal justice reform, and you should too. You know, these are things that you've been doing for years, right? As I hear a police siren, you know, cruising by in my apartment right now. But you know, right. why why has that always been so important to the company? And for people that don't know, has it been something that has always been important um, since the company was founded in the late seventies? You know, when Ben and Jerry sort of started the company, and a few years later, sort of uh, um, uh, institutionalized this approach to doing business in our three part mission statement, it was pretty radical in, in at that time. So it's always been a part of who we are. We've done it sometimes better than other times over the arc of the 42-year history of the company. But the other thing I want to say is you don't have to have a 42-year history to be able to do this now. Mm-hmm. Like, this is an important moment. And, and if all we do collectively as a society, as corporations, a business community – is what we've all been doing for the last 42 years, things will never change, right? And so what what is unique, not what is unique, but what is notable about what we're seeing in the U.S., frankly, and around the world over the past couple of weeks is something that is struck a chord in a much wider segment of the population. Right. It's not, it, it, you know, 
certainly there there were uh, folks in Ferguson other than Black Lives Matter activists several years ago. But but what we're seeing now is you know white people stepping up in a way that they haven't in the past uh, at at these rallies at these protests. You're seeing them not just in. LA or Minneapolis or New York, you're seeing them in Burlington, Vermont, in Canton, New York, right? You're seeing them in these rural communities. And so I think that's an incredibly important sign, I think. And, and I think, you know, it, it ultimately a statement is just a statement. It, it, let's not overstate the importance of the statement and that ultimately what will drive change are the people on the front lines, the people that are in the streets and, and, you know, what we're seeing here, I think gives me hope that there's an opportunity here. Right. And, you know, to that point, in my mind, personally, I, I do like seeing companies that I love Um, Ben and Jerry's being a prime example of that sharing my own values, sharing my worldview and supporting causes that I believe in and that I think are personally right. I, but I do see, and, and this is excluding you because you guys have such a tradition of doing this, but what would you say to the people that might be like, you know, why is an ice cream company talking about this? Why are they joining the conversation? Why is it important that they make their voice heard when they're here and this is what some people think obviously just to give us a product you know what would you say to those people i would say why not an ice cream company i mean you know our ice cream company is just a collective of people who you know like uh, uh, uh you know most people we care about things in the world and we're multifaceted and have different interests we're passionate about ice cream we you know are passionate about issues around economic and social justice. So I think, you know, we look for better or for worse. Corporations are the most powerful entity within society, right? There, there is a, a, a massive lack of leadership on these issues that's coming from the current administration, mm-hmm. the Congress who seems fairly incapable of dealing with even just the, the kind of ongoing day to day, uh, issues that our society wrestles with, and corporations have massive influence over the public policy process and our elected political leaders because of the massive and unregulated amount of money that that filters through our political system. Most corporations use that influence that they have, you know, more often than not, in service of their direct short-term financial interest, right? Mm-hmm. So companies care about things like labor law and health, uh, uh, um, tax policy and trade policy, right? They, they, they typically don't weigh in on issues that aren't in their own direct narrow self-interest. But what, what we know at Ben and Jerry's, and I think there are a number of other companies that are, that are, are good at this and uh, we're, it's becoming more common. You know, Lush Cosmetics, uh, Patagonia, uh, you know, our sister company based in Burlington, Vermont, that was acquired by Unilever a couple of years ago, seventh generation, right? I mean, what does what selling baby diapers and soap have to do with, you know, issues around climate justice? But they've been, been 
you know, really leaning in on that issue over the last couple of years at seven generations. So I think why not an ice cream company? And I think there is a, you know, you know, Ben said many years ago that the strongest bonds that you can create with your customers is around a shared set of values. Like he understood that, that speaking out about the things that he believed in and, and taking action on, on issues that are rooted in our own values not only was it not bad for business, but it actually created a, 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 an affinity and a, a, a level of loyalty for people who support and share our values. That's, you know, that's very powerful. And so, you know, we've grown this business year over year for 42 years, like, it may seem counterintuitive for a conventional traditional marketer yeah. to want to step into something that feels controversial, but we're really okay with the idea that not everyone is going to love us and, yeah. and we're going to continue to grow the business, right? Like that's, we're, we're comfortable with that. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting where it's like, you know, you said it could feel controversial when what you guys are saying is just like, white supremacy is bad which is not really a it, it, it shouldn't be a controversial statement it shouldn't be it shouldn't be and, and to that point and, and to what you've been talking about uh ben and jerry's might be a an exception here because you know i think it's it's pretty clear where you guys fall on the political spectrum but when a company makes a statement like this um what are the risks involved and what are the benefits? Are you just going in realizing that you know unfortunately there are a lot of people that probably don't want to buy your ice cream because you believe in these things. Do you weigh those risks? Um, do you weigh the benefits or is it just, you know, collateral damage that you don't mind losing people as customers if they don't believe in the same things that you as a company believe in? No, I'll tell you the thing I worry about. I don't worry about people disagreeing with us because we are standing up denouncing structural racism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. What I worry about is, I guess, getting too far out over our skis. I don't want those who are on the front lines of this work, who are in communities that are dealing with police brutality day in and day out to feel like we're co-opting this movement. And, And so that's the thing for me that I, I think the team at Ben and Jerry's is just, that's what we're focused on ensuring that hopefully we don't do. And, and we do that by working with a, a, a deep stable of partners and stakeholders in this work. We don't pretend to be experts on these issues. We want to take, the strategies of our partners and we want to bring our unique set of tools and our, our voice and our connection to our consumer base to advance their work. And so, you know, in a statement like we put out uh, uh, a week or so ago, that statement was seen by a number of our partners before it ever saw the light of day. And so it is important that we are framing these issues in the right way, that, that we're supporting the right kinds of progressive systemic policy changes that are required to address some of these things. And so, you know, that 
that we we spend a lot of time thinking about that and making sure we're getting that right. And we spend, I mean, if I'm honest, in my six and a half years there, I, I, I've never had a colleague or someone on the management team say we can't do that because it's going to hurt sales. We really? Just, we just don't go there. We, 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 you know, and I think I'm fortunate because I think I work with a bunch of people who understand that these issues are important and that they aren't in conflict with a healthy, successful business. Has there ever been something that you, you know, you talked about, you've never really been, um, you've never had an idea turned down, but it was, has there ever been something that you personally wanted to shy away from or something that you thought about trying or speaking out against that you dialed back on for any number of reasons? Because it does seem like you guys have your beliefs and you go for it. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Have have we self-censored based on everything we know about our colleagues in leadership. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure we have, you know, I've been reflecting a lot recently about the work that we've been doing over the past couple of years around the need to reform the criminal justice system. I mean, we've been very clear about the need to divest from, um, the over-reliance on policing and law enforcement and to take those funds and invest them into the kinds of solutions that create uh, uh, public safety and safer communities. Uh, until the statement, we had not used the term police brutality. Mm-hmm. And we, so from a frame point of view, We've been talking about this as divest invest. We've been working in Miami with a coalition of grassroots groups to to get cops out of public schools and to fund the the, the guidance counselors and career counselors that are required to support students. Um, and so we've been actually doing the work, but but we hadn't used those words. And as I think back now over the course of those the past couple of years of doing this work. I, I regret not having used those words before. Um, and so, you know, yeah, there's probably some level of self-censorship that goes on, but I, I feel incredibly fortunate to work at a place that has a leadership and a team that believes in this stuff, that is willing to take risks, and uh, uh, and, and that is surrounded by a, a a group of allies and and um, uh, external groups and not for profits that that we work with um, and that are trusted partners. And so, you know, could we go farther? Should we go farther? I'm sure the answer to that question is yes. And I think that's our constant challenge is to kind of continue to push us as far as we can go. Because I, I do believe that that it is companies like Ben and Jerry's that are willing to kind of push the edge of the envelope on what's acceptable in the corporate world that ultimately creates the space behind it for others at some point to step up. Right. And so I I do feel that part of our role at Ben and Jerry's is to continue to push that edge of the envelope so that it becomes harder for other companies not to be engaged on some level. Okay, we're going to take a really quick ad break, but we'll be right back. Hey, 
it's, I mean, especially with the internet, companies, brands, they are so ingrained in our lives. We have constant means of communication between them. I mean, even just look at Twitter. Like, you can tweet directly to a brand, and there's a good chance they'll answer you. Can brands afford to be apolitical nowadays? Can they afford to just be totally neutral and not put out anything? Or do you think that with the way consumers think and act now, you have to align yourself with some type of values? You know, I think the companies that are most relevant in people's lives, kind of going back to Ben's quote, are the companies that are are connecting with people around not just a, a commercial product transaction, but around a shared set of values. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is also true that if you look at all of the companies that, that attempted to weigh in on the, the events of recent weeks, the ones that were that has seen, I think, the most criticism and had the roughest go of it are not the ones who didn't say anything. They're the ones that tried to thread this needle of wanting to say something, but not wanting to say something that was seen as controversial or political. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't, I'm I'm not going to point a bunch of fingers, but I think, you know, the NFL is a great case study, right? their first statement was a statement that didn't even mention the word racism. Right. And so if we can't say, you know, if we can't call this what it is, we have no hope of making the kind of progress we need to make. And so, you know, what you saw, and there was a big opportunity there, right? Because obviously the NFL has had a a complicated and, and rocky few years on just these issues. And instead of the NFL doing, in my humble estimation, what they should have done, which was it was an opportunity to bridge the gap between the league and the players and come together with a unified statement, right? They put out this weak statement, didn't use the word racism, and then were rapidly overtaken by the players. And it would have been just just a huge missed opportunity for the league to have you know, if, if they felt it was important to weigh in on these, to do it with the players who have been so outspoken on this. What would be your advice to people, you know, from from small businesses that, that want to get involved in this type of thing to big corporations? What would be your advice um, on the right way to handle this type of action? You know, it, it, this stuff has to be rooted in something that's real, right? It, it, like. For us, we're a company that was founded by two real dudes who had a, a strong set of values and who identified an opportunity to use the business to advance change that, that was rooted in their values. So, so for us, you may disagree with our point of view on a particular issue, but it's hard to come at us and say it's either inauthentic, that we're trying to appropriate someone else's set of issues, or that we're doing it just to sell ice cream. And I think the, the, that would be my two pieces of advice is be brave, be bold. Don't, don't, you know, don't worry about pissing some people off. But whatever it is you do, root it in something real. And, yeah. and I think if, if you have those two things, you know, it's not to say you won't be criticized, but, you know, I, I think we believe at Ben & Jerry's Unless you're pissing people off, it's probably not important. Right, right. I, I have that own uh, 
motto in my my personal day-to-day life. What's next for Ben and Jerry's on the activism side? Uh, or, or is it something that you just mm-hmm. have to see how things unfold? No, I think, you know, as I suggested, th- this statement is sort of a point in time on a continuum of, of a bunch of work that's happened around criminal justice reform over the last two years. And that work is going to continue to move forward. So we are going to be focused on the need to end mass incarceration, to stop spending unending amounts of money on a broken policing system, while on the other hand, not providing people job training, education, health care, access to mental health counseling and substance abuse counseling, right? Those are the things that are going to create safer and healthier communities. And so that work is going to continue. I think what we're seeing now is is a debate around this issue of defunding the police. And the proposal that we've seen come out of Minneapolis is incredibly powerful. You know, in, in my hometown of Burlington, Vermont, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're a city of 40,000 people. You know, it's a pretty quiet, sleepy place. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of violent crime. 25% of the city of Burlington's budget is spent on BPD. Now, I don't have any problem with police officers, you know, individually, but in a city where we need to be doing much better on education, where we have homeless people, where we have people struggling with substance abuse, it is insane that we are spending 25% uh, of the city's budget on policing in Burlington, Vermont. So this is happening in towns and cities all over the country. And, and so, you know, we're going to continue to stay focused on, on supporting and driving the kinds of policies that end mass incarceration on the one hand. And, and on the other hand, continuing to talk about the need to reckon with our past, uh, that until we as Americans own up to and reckon with 400 years of legalized uh, uh, segregation, slavery, and racism, there is no way that we can move together uh, as a society in the future that's more just and equitable. Right. Yep. Well, I I just want to say that I personally appreciate everything you guys are doing and everything that you're putting out there. And I, I know from the positive response we've seen over the past week or so, and also the past few years that a lot of other people appreciate it too. So um, thank you for your time today and, and thank you for laying out what you do and, and giving out your advice. It is much appreciated, Chris. My, my pleasure. I really do appreciate your interest and I appreciate your uh, forbearance as I finished my pizza day at the beginning here. So thanks so much and <laughs> no problem. take care. Thank you, Chris. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, We'll switch gears a little bit and bring in one of Ben & Jerry's esteemed flavor gurus, Eric Fredette. Eric Fredette is one of Ben & Jerry's flavor gurus. They are responsible for ideating and creating all of the ice cream flavors we know and love. We felt it was only right to celebrate the ice cream along with the company. Um, I have a lot of questions about their creative process. And he's also just a generally lovely person to talk to. Here's our call. Yeah, I was, I was saying before, you know, I live in Brooklyn, and I went out last night and tried to find some Ben & Jerry pints, you know, for inspiration, and I couldn't find any anywhere. Totally sold out. Like, clearly, the rest of the ice cream, you know, people went in and chose Ben & Jerry's on purpose. So, like, bad for me, but great for you guys. There's a ton of support out there. 
Yeah, we. I think um, when people are down, they look at our product as a, a little escape. And it's affordable when you can't, you know, go someplace and get a hotel room and relax. <laughs> you know, you can do it at home with a, with a pint and a good movie and, you know, it works. We're still making ice cream like crazy. Like we're we're going. It's just I don't know where it's all going, but we're making it. <laughs> it's going somewhere. I think it's going into people's freezers. <laughs> sure. And what is your favorite part of being a Ben and Jerry's flavor guru? Um, I think at this point, um, I have an incredible appreciation for our team. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. My favorite part of my job is we will make meals together. We have um, what we named Cultural Thursdays. Um, it's not every Thursday. It's just sort of a, a name we gave it. It usually happens on a Thursday. We pick a cuisine, a global cuisine, and um, we make lunch from those flavors. Um, so that's always um, a lot of fun. So, yeah, I think hanging out with my team um, because it's, they're awesome. Yeah, um, it, I mean, that's that's important no matter where you work. Uh, so that's interesting. So you call it Cultural Thursdays even when it's not on a Thursday just because of tradition? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it confuses. We usually have a guest. Yeah. It usually confuses them. It's like, oh, this is Cultural Thursday. On a Wednesday. <laughs> Bold new idea. Right. That's funny. Do do, yeah. do flavors, um, do ice cream flavor ideas ever come out of these meetings? You know, you're having something for lunch and then you maybe think, oh, this could be a cool new flavor or maybe like, I wish we had this to pair with it. Like, does that ever happen? Um, I try to make a flavor for our lunches mm-hmm. using the flavors of that culture. So last time we did, um, we did Indian food, we did a bunch of curry. So it wasn't all Indian, it was curry. Yeah. So we did uh, Japanese curry, Indian curry, um, Indian curry. And I made um, a coconut mango ice cream and I put curried milk chocolate chips in it. So it's pretty amazing. And that, you know, that's not uh, a flavor that's widely, you know, released. That was just something you whipped up in the kitchen just for your own enjoyment. Oh yeah, that's one batch. So we made, I made six pints and we scooped it for ourselves, the R&D group, and whoever our guest was um, that day. Wow. Um, and we scooped it for them, and uh, we just ate it ourselves. It's, it's curry's great in milk chocolate, but it's I don't think the whole world is ready for something like that yet. Sure. Um, but who knows? That's interesting. You have these you know. bespoke flavors going on. And you know, I think that brings up an important point. Like, how do you know when the world is ready for a certain flavor. I know that, you know, you try to gauge what the people want, but where do you fall between, like, you know, doing something that you know will please the crowds um, as opposed to putting out something that might be a little more adventurous and, you know, people might not know that they want it until they try it? Right. So um, my thought on that is I try to marry something a little edgy, something a little risky with something very familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way you get the trial. They'll take it off the shelf because it's pretty familiar except for that little edginess. Yeah. And then a good example of that is um, Nat just did um, Justice Remix. 
Yes. Um, it's a flavor that we just did, and it's cinnamon ice cream with cinnamon bundo, chocolate ice cream with a spicy brown. So we took, Nat took our regular brownies that are in chocolate ice brownies and added chili and cinnamon and some nutmeg to them. The vendor did for her. Mm-hmm. So they have a little heat to them. When you eat it, it's cinnamony and chili-like and chocolatey, and then you get this little bit of heat at the end, which I thought was amazing. Um, we did have some people say, oh, that's, it's too hot. You can't eat that. And there shouldn't be heat in ice cream. And But for the most part, the, their reaction was good to it. It's delicious. so amazing. happening all the time. Definitely. And, you know, you talked about this a little bit, but where where do you get inspirations for new flavors? Um, I mean, like, even using something specific, can, can you talk about um, any flavor that went from you having an idea to you developing it to it being out on the shelves? You know, like, like where does this come from? Because your flavors are, they're wild and inventive, and they're really fun. Um, flavor ideas come from all over the place. So we have fans that write in flavor ideas to our website. Mm-hmm. And we get thousands and thousands um, a month there. And then there's always something, um, there's always something trending. Um, so I look at all of that. I get um, probably four or five food blogs in my inbox almost daily. And I just cruise through them to see what's trending. I look at new restaurant openings and their menu when they open. So I think I think the chef opens his restaurant with his uh, riskiest menu. Like this is the things that he's he's putting a stake in the sand. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the things that don't sell that are super risky get dropped off, and new things evolve into the menu over time. But I always think they open with stuff that they really feel is there that they they own, and it's new. So some of that. Um, Conversations around lunch sometimes spark a flavor idea. Um, people send in, they send us stuff. We get a lot of cold call stuff boxes, packages arrive with things in them. If just from fans, um, just from like members of the public or people, you know, chefs that kind of want. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. And you, you read all these suggestions and, and you, I mean, not you personally, but someone reads all these suggestions and someone opens all this uh, fan mail. Yeah. We have a, a group, uh, Consumer Fair, that does all of that. They are the first, they're the contact with our fans. If you call, if you write, if you email, send something in on the website, um, it goes to them. And they screen everything. We actually don't get those ideas that come in over the phone and stuff until um, the person who is submitting them has filled out a form and releases the idea, and then we can look at them. Because wow, we might be working on something that's similar, and then they can claim that you know we took their idea but didn't acknowledge it or something. And sure, uh, that's why we have a notebook. A notebook. All my formulas are dated. Um, everything I make in the kitchen is in my notebook for the date, so that we can go back and say, "Well, no, this idea actually has been around for a while." Yeah, but yeah, ideas come from all over the place. Food trends a lot of times. That must be a valuable notebook. Hey, hey, and by the way, is one of the food blogs that you read um, Thrillist by any chance every day? Um, I don't get Thrillist every day. I do read Thrillist. I don't get it every day. <laughs> I get like Food and Wine and and Silver and like the food magazine um, mostly. I think. 
Okay, well, we'll set you up. We'll, we'll sign you up for the uh, email newsletter. We'll have someone do that right now, actually, just in case. What's the most challenging part of being a flavor guru? Um, most challenging. For me, the most challenging is if I have a flavor, say, chocolate fudge brownie that's out on the market. Yeah. And the my supplier has a catastrophic fire or something. Mm. So I have to get brownies, those brownies, somewhere else. They can't be, they can't change. Our fan base is very, very loyal, and um, they know their favorite flavor, like the back of their hand. So if you tweak anything, we get, e- we get email and we get calls, and fans are not happy because you ruined their favorite flavor by changing, you know, the peanut butter cup for a different one or whatever. So I think matching existing ingredients so that the fan, our fans who love that flavor can't tell is probably one of the hardest things that we do. Now, has there, we don't have to do it often. Yeah. When we do, it's hard. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is there a specific instance of that? Because, um, you know, I'm a pretty big Ben and Jerry's fan myself. I've, I've tried every single flavor um, and I ranked every flavor uh, and I've never picked up on that. Is there one um, classic flavor that has either the ingredients or overall has been changed or tweaked a little bit for any number of reasons? Um, a good example, we had to move away from a supplier of a, um, a cheesecake base. Mm. that we use in strawberry cheesecake. And we got a woman called Consumer Affairs and uh, and told them that uh, you've changed my flavor. Like something's not right. And I first noticed it in June. And this is like in August or something, or maybe even later. And so Consumer Affairs sends it, sends it over to us. Like, so did we change anything? Did something happen with this? And sure enough, she... It, the month that we probably changed, she knew that the cheesecake flavor in the background with the strawberries and ice cream and all that, like this is a complex flavor. So it's hard to pick out any one flavor note. Um, she said it was different. <laughs> she was wrecking. That's crazy. That's... And we tried really, really hard to match, like an exact match because every, every flavor is someone's absolute favorite must have thing when they're upset or, whatever it's just and they they know their flavor <laughs> <laughs> oh definitely definitely and you know you talk about favorite flavors um i'm gonna give you my top three favorite flavors and you know like i was saying i tried them all i've really thought about this my top three in descending order number three is americone dream which is the stephen colbert flavor um you know yeah. i don't have to tell you this but it's you know vanilla ice cream with um Little chunks of waffle cone in them. Delicious. Number two is something that I was literally raised on. Chunky Monkey banana ice cream. Uh, chunks of chocolate. Love it. And number one, even though I'm not a fan of this person uh, personally, uh, Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Dough. And I think it's pretty interesting. Two of my top three flavors are uh, based off of late night hosts. Uh, with with those two examples, did Jimmy Fallon or um, Stephen Colbert did they weigh in on the flavors they were making? Because both of those are amazing flavors. Obviously, they're my top three. Um, or was it something where you kind of came up with flavors, your team came up with flavors and brought them to these hosts? You know, how involved were they? So usually um, we ask if they have any ideas. Um, and typically, um, it's not something that people 
think about a lot. So um, they usually don't. Yeah. And then, so we start tossing ideas to them. Um, and if they find something that they they think um, is interesting, then we'll make those flavors on the bench top and they'll get to sample them. So they don't actually get to choose everything. Marketing likes to keep a hold of that. Sure. Um, but they do agree. They do get to sample all this concept and they can choose one that they think is the best. And, um, and typically we like them all. So it's not hard to, you know, we can let them choose what they like the best sometimes. Um, Cause the flavors are all great, but yeah. So they do get to weigh in. They don't get final decision, um, but certainly they get to taste every, all the concepts are considering and get to weigh in on what, flavor profile they like the best now do you remember the experiences where you working on either of those flavors where you were dealing with um either jimmy fallon or stephen colbert in these cases i did um i did tonight though that's my favorite so, one there you go I spent, yeah i had sent a few other concepts in because i figured late night you know late night for me is a shot of bourbon with a nice cube in it, uh, watching TV. I'm not late, 10 o'clock is late for me. Right. But, um, so I sent a, a nice, uh, like an, a Manhattan-style ice cream thing with bourbon in it. Um, and that was Axe. There's a couple others that were just sort of more paper concepts. But I thought, for sure, I mean, Nightcap is tonight. You know, it's the night show. It's night show. It's late. People are, you know, having a nightcap before bed and they're watching the tonight show. And I thought that would be great, but yeah, it didn't win. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. It came out pretty well, but I feel like you and I are on similar wavelengths there. Um, I don't know if you're at liberty to answer this, but what what is your top what are your top three flavors of all of them? Um, of all of them. Wow. Tough. I know. Um last thing present. I'm a huge fan of booze and ice cream. I am responsible for most of the ice creams that have booze in them. Nice. Um, So, Dublin Mudslide is probably my number three. Okay. And that was Irish cream ice cream with chocolate chocolate chip cookies and a chocolate espresso swirl. So good. Um, Number two is probably bourbon pecan pie. Okay. We sell that in Texas. It's a bourbon brown butter ice cream with a whiskey caramel swirl, um, pecans, and uh, shortbread pieces. Sure. And my favorite, my go-to, and it has been for the longest time, is fish food. Fish because food is Because our milk chocolate ice cream yeah. is amazing. And we make our own marshmallows. So that comes in as a syrup. We whip that before we inject it into the ice cream. So it's chewy and chewy and stretchy and... Um, and our caramel tastes like a, a melted sugar dad, like a liquid sugar dad. Yeah. And that's nostalgic to me because I grew up with them. So, um, yeah, I think part of the thing with this is nostalgia and the fact that flavor combination, the marshmallow, <laughs> so good. It's definitely a classic. I think that might be the first uh, Ben & Jerry's flavor I ever tried. So, I mean, that it's, it's up there for me, too. Um, okay. Do you use a fork or a spoon? to eat ice cream because I'm on team fork and I think that most people are team spoon, but I like forks because it's, it's less metal in your mouth. I feel like it's easier to 
dig in, especially when the ice cream gets hard. What, what, what do you think as a professional ice cream maker? So I take a lot of grief, but I am on Team Fork. Thank you. Thank you very much. For the same reason. I don't have to wait for ice cream to temper if I use a fork. I can pull it out of the freezer, and if I can get the lid off, I can eat it with a fork. And you can't with a spoon. Yep, you're totally right. You are you don't you know fight back if anyone if anyone challenges you on that. Um, okay, as someone who eats ice oh, cream, yeah, <laughs> as, as, some, as someone who eats ice cream a lot, how do you get rid of brain freeze? Do you have a go-to method? Um, you have to eat a little slower. <laughs> okay, that's it. Yeah, because it's uh, it's the temperature of the roof of your mouth that causes brain freeze, and if you're eating ice cream too fast. <laughs> That would be it. And frankly, I don't usually get it because I pick around for the chunks. Okay. So it takes a little time to develop the chunks. And um, so I don't eat ice cream overly fast. Although, first production, if you're on the line and we're making a new flavor and you take a pint into the QA lab to taste it, it's at 22 degrees. It's softer with swirls and chunks. In. Like you can eat a whole pint in under a minute because it's soft. <laughs> I would take that challenge. Yes, I, I have Actually. had them, and they they are excellent. Um, okay, last question: Can you shed any light on um, something that you might be working on currently? A new flavor? I, I don't know. Are you under embargo? I'm trying to get the inside scoop. No pun intended. Um, that I cannot share. Uh, okay, it was worth a even, shot. I don't even tell my wife. I don't even tell my wife. When really? I first started twenty four years ago. Yeah, I told her. When I first started 24 years ago, I told her it was something I was working on. And we were at a friend's house and there was, you know, cocktails and people. And across the room, I hear her telling someone what I'm working on. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, no, no, <laughs> confidential. Yeah. So I don't tell her anything. And she's okay with it because she knows that she, if she knew that she would blab because it's cool information to have. It is. It's like, you know, being married to someone that works at the Pentagon, except uh, I feel like more important. Um, so I definitely understand the need for secrecy there. Well, um, Eric, thank you so much for coming on and, and shedding a little bit of light on uh, what your job is like. I think it's a very objectively cool job for an objectively cool brand. Um, and I'm glad that we got to take this episode, this episode to celebrate you guys. And um, yeah, share the love a little bit. I know everyone loves your ice cream so thank you for doing thank you for your service so to speak excellent you are welcome <laughs> and um continue to use a fork i'm gonna do the same and i, I you know that's that's yeah. something we should spread awareness about forks for ice cream why yep i told we have a, a new packaging guy um and he's like 29 and he comes in and he's bending his spoon and i'm like dude get a fork Fork so now he eats ice cream with a fork too. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I might go do some of that right now. Well, thanks, Eric. You have a great day. You also. Thanks, fam. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening and a special thanks to our extended pod family, Megan Kirsch, Jim D'Amico, Brett Kushner, Emily Felt, and Mangesh Hadakudor from iHeartRadio. Our associate producer is Mia Fask, and this episode was edited and mixed by the excellent Dan Byrne. Keep fighting out there, everyone, and we will see you next week. What I